Welcome to another home-cooked episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, May 18th. Two women lost special elections last week, but the number of women in the House could go up again this year as a record number are running. Again. Joining us to discuss the candidate boom is Kelly Dittmar, a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, which has been tracking the data. After that, we'll break down a new ad that hit the airwaves last week. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week is 476. That was the record number of women who ran for U.S. House seats in the 2018 election. And I say was because that record has been broken in the 2020 election. According to the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, 490 women have filed to run for U.S. House seats, and that number will rise because the official candidate filing periods in some states have not yet concluded. The 490 women include 295 Democrats and 195 Republicans. It remains to be seen how many women become the nominees and then win in November, but we'll be be tracking that here on Down Ballot Counts, and we'll have more on this subject coming right up. After the break, we'll talk about how women are playing a major role in the fight for the congressional majorities. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Kelly Dittmar, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University Camden and Scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Kelly, 2018 looked like a landmark year for women congressional candidates. Um, According to your data on candidate filings, the record didn't even last a single election cycle. Is this the new normal? We hope so. I mean, one of the big questions coming out of 2018 was whether or not we would see the trend continue in terms of women increasing their candidacies in a serious way. Because we had seen incremental increases over time, of course, uh, but in 2018, we saw a real jump. Um, in women's candidacies overall, particularly among Democratic women. And so seeing us break the record this cycle when we still have a number of states left to file is a good sign, a good indicator that we aren't, that 2018 wasn't just a blip. It wasn't just another quote unquote year of the woman, which, you know, we throughout the cycle had been pushing back against that moniker because what it does, it is, is it assumes that there are only really odd years where the confluence of factors work so much that women can run at higher rates. And so seeing the overall number increase this year and seeing the number of Republican women increase pretty significantly um, is important in indicating a positive trend going forward. So part of the big year, what some people were calling the year of the woman again in 2018 was how many people won. And I, I know the, the number of women filers right now is a record, um, but there's a still, still a long way to go in matching the number of women who won their primaries in 2018. And then beyond that, there's a lot of districts that aren't actually competitive uh, from a partisan perspective. Based on what you've seen, how likely is the candidate boom going to lead to an increase in women in the House? 
Yeah, this is the point of caution that's really important. And we had been issuing this same caution in 2018, saying, look, these women are running primarily as challengers, whether it be in primaries or general elections, and these are going to be tough races. The same is true this year, especially among Republican women who broke the record already for their candidacies um, this year uh, before we're even done. Um 68.2% of the Republican women running are running as challengers, whether in the primary or general election. Um, and even among Democrats, that number is still 54 or 55%. And so uh, we have to be careful about assuming that an increase in, in these candidacies will inevitably lead to a significant increase in office holding. That said, in 2018, we were pretty pleasantly surprised pleasantly, excuse me, surprised um, that those numbers did increase as much as they did, despite the fact that these women were running as challengers or non-incumbents. But you have to also look at the environment in which they were running. So we had most of the women running in 2018 who accounted for the surge were Democrats. And they were running in an environment that ultimately, at least at the in-house contests, ended up being friendly to Democrats. In 2020, the reverse is true. We have more Republican women running, and they're running more often as challengers, of course, because they are in the minority in the House. But the environment doesn't seem to be equally friendly, I think you could argue, to Republicans in 2020 as it was to Democrats in 2018. Of course, that's all sort of up in the air. Um, But that's sort of the question we have this year. How will Republicans fare if they fare okay as challengers? Then we'd see an increase among women, we hope, if they make it through their primaries. Um, But there's a lot of ifs still to go. And what explains the historically large partisan gap in the number of Democratic women and Republican women who run for Congress? Yeah, I think there's no single explanation, but there are certainly a number of things that contribute to it. So one overall is we know that if you look at the full population, women are more likely to identify as Democrats. So you have an initial gender gap in partisan identification. Of course, that doesn't explain running for Congress because you're pulling down the population to a pretty small number at that point. So that shouldn't explain away um, the gap that we've seen in candidacies and office holding. Just to be clear, right, over 80% of the women in the House right now are Democrats. So you're talking about a huge gap among office holders, especially. Um, And that gap persists among candidates. So partisanship in the population, that explains a little bit of it. Um, More so than that, though, we really pointed to two things at the center often that come up in the research as well as in our uh, discussions with uh, candidates and partisans. One is that there is a very different support infrastructure between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to targeted recruitment and support for women candidates. You can point to on the Democratic side, probably the most notable being Emily's List, right? Dumping millions of dollars into races only for women candidates, which is an incentive to the party to recruit women candidates because with that woman candidate comes financial support and significant financial support, right? It's not just a $5,000 PAC donation. Uh, This is independent expenditure funding, et cetera. So there's an incentive there for the party to support women because of that external support infrastructure. There's also more training programs, targeted recruitment programs for women like Emerge and others that are specific to Democratic and or pro-choice women. 
On the Republican side, that support infrastructure has really lagged. So there are some PACs for women like ViewPAC, Maggie's List, uh, Winning for Women, and those have grown slightly in the last couple of years, and they're definitely active this cycle. But they're still not giving nearly the amount of money, nor having nearly the same influence on the party as as those organizations have on the on the Democratic side of the aisle. So that's a real problem, right? If we're going to change the landscape, we need women to, there to be targeted efforts to support women, to recruit women, and to help them not only just run, but get through primaries and get be successful in a general election. So it's targeted strategic in, uh, recruitment and then financial and strategic support throughout the whole process. The secondary and sort of final thing related to Republicans is why you might see less of that support infrastructure is in part because the Republican Party itself has said, we do not like or abide by identity politics. Now, we could all debate whether or not that's true, but certainly they see a targeted recruitment and support of women as, quote unquote, playing identity politics. And you've seen prominent Republican leaders say, that's not how we roll, right? Um, and we don't see a need to do that. We're going to just choose the best candidates. Well, by doing that, they play into the biases that exist in the system that have worked to the advantage of white men for so long. And uh what have Republicans done to try and close that gap in 2020? The uh, record of 476 women running for the House was about three to one Democratic. Now you have a, still have a gap of about 100. I think your research shows 295 Democrats, 195 Republicans. Why has the gap closed and what are some Republican officials at least uh, trying to do to close that gap? So one important caveat to the closing of the gap is that more Democratic women are running as incumbents right? Because we have record number of Democratic women in office, which means they are less likely to have challengers against them. So part of that is, uh, is, um, may, is explains the numbers as they are right now. And so we have to be a little bit careful about the overall gap closing, just to note that that's part of the story. Um, but it definitely doesn't explain all the story. So there's definitely some influence in this closing of the gap due to some of these organizations and efforts um, on the Republican side to recruit and support women. And, and here you have to give credit to Susan Brooks, who's the recruitment chair, um, and to Elise Stefanik, who has really put out a call to try to inc increase the number of Republican women in office. And she did that right after the 2018 election with her launch of her own PAC, EPAC, um, has been really sounding the alarm and bringing other Republican women in particular with her to make a case for why they needed to recruit and support more women candidates. Uh, she kind of put some of the Republican male leadership on the spot to do that, and, and they've made public statements saying they too would support these efforts. And so you have seen at least a public statement of a problem on the Republican side. And in theory, I don't know what's all going on in behind the scenes, but it seems like through these numbers, some of that behind the scenes stuff is happening to help recruit and support these women, at least to come forward as candidates. But I think what you suggested earlier is really important, which is, is that encouragement of getting Republican women on a primary ballot translating into getting them to the general election and getting them to win. Um, and that's going to be a big question for this cycle. The party has continued to say they will not get involved in the primary. But part of the way you close this gap of women being 6% of your total caucus 
is you make a targeted effort early, like Emily's List has done. You support women early, and you help funnel them through to election day and to to victory. And how have how have women of color fared historically in congressional elections? And can you speak to the prospects for more women of color running and winning congressional seats in November? Yeah, I, I just actually looked at these data. We're still gathering some of the race and ethnicity data at the Center for American Women in Politics because we do self-identification. So it takes a little time for candidates to get back to us and let, let us know how they want to be identified. But I did do a run of the data actually pretty recently, and the numbers were similar uh, to 2018 overall, meaning that the diversity, the racial and ethnic diversity of women candidates seems to be relatively on par with what it was in 2018, slight, perhaps slightly higher um, this year in terms of uh, non-white candidates. Um, but of course, 2018 was a pretty good year as well. We were diversifying the candidate pool in a lot of ways, not only in race and ethnicity, but also in age and background, right? What made folks run for office? So what we hope is that we see that continue this year, um, that we see the diversification in terms of race, racial and ethnic makeup of women in Congress. In 2018, of course, we marked a couple of significant milestones. The first Native American women were elected to Congress. The first women of color were elected from five different states. Um, we had the first Muslim women elected to Congress. And we also, at the congressional level, had the first Democratic woman of color governor elected as well in 2018. There's two sides to sort of putting that forward, though. One is to celebrate the gains, of course, and those are really important. But the other is to say, wow, why were we no celebrating those firsts in 2018. So I think in 2020, we'll probably see some additional firsts, some other states that might um, elect women of color or women from specific um, racial and ethnic groups that have been and continue to be underrepresented. Um, but one positive thing that we've seen, especially on the Democratic side, is a real diversification of the women who are in office, an actual sort of re reflection of the population, at least if you look among women only to that racial and ethnic diversity. And uh, what can be done to encourage more women to run for political office? So one of the things is to move beyond simple encouragement. So we do have to make a positive case to women for why running for office is important and why their representation matters. And our organizations like ours and research from my colleagues and myself have really tried to do that, right? Which is to try to say, it really matters that you're there. Here are the, the, the ways you can make a difference once you're in office and really feeding into women's motivation. Uh, we know that women are more likely to be motivated to run based on policy issues or policy change they want to see versus a sense that they just want this office, right? That they want the power. Um, and so you have to make it clear to women that if they get into the U.S. House, they're going to actually be able to enact policy change. And as you can imagine, sometimes making that case is difficult when people look at politics and think it's broken, this isn't the place to make change. And remember that women, and particularly women of color, have been successful working outside of these systems for so long that they say, well, why should I be part of the system when I can advocate from the outside? So continually making the case, demonstrating the ways that they can make a difference is really important. Um, but the encouragement and making that case has to go beyond just, I want you to run for office. It has to go to, how am I going to help you get from filing to election day and to success? And so that's that sort of full strategic recruitment that means I'm going to look at 
where you should run so that you can be successful. I'm going to help you get through a primary. I'm going to help you get through the general election. And here are the the things that I'm going to do to help you address some of the distinct challenges that you might face, not only as a woman, but particularly for communities and women of color. There are other barriers that are going to come along the way. So you can't just say to women, run, 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 and then not support all of those challenges and help them navigate those hurdles along the way. So that's that's a big part of it. And then related to this, of course, is putting the responsibility on men and those who are in power in parties and in these uh, as donors to really make a strong investment in women candidates. So not just to say, oh, it would be nice to have more women, but I want to make sure that this field is more equitable and how am I going to do that? So whether I give money, whether as a party leader, I make sure I recruit more women, those are the efforts that need to be done to change the overall infrastructure to better support women to run and win. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. You can follow Kelly on Twitter at KDitmar. Kelly Dittmar, thanks so much for your insights today. Thank you. Now we're heading to Colorado for our ad of the week. Coronavirus tests are coming to Colorado from South Korea because of Senator Cory Gardner. Senator Cory Gardner has developed relationships with the heads of state in countries like South Korea, Vietnam, and Taiwan. More than 100,000 test kits from South Korea. Taiwan is sending 2 million face masks and all. Senator Cory Gardner, who I talk with multiple times every day, has done everything I've asked to help in our response. We are going to get through this. We will get through this together. According to our friends at Advertising Analytics, that was the first broadcast ad of the cycle from Colorado's Cory Gardner, who is likely the most vulnerable Republican senator. The theme is pretty clear. Gardner gets things done and can be counted on, even in a crisis, including by the state's Democratic governor. Greg, what stuck out to you? Yeah, Kyle, so this ad is meant to show Cory Gardner as a responsive senator who's leveraging his relationships at home and abroad to do good for his state. And as you alluded to just a second ago, that voice you heard saying Gardner has done everything I've asked to help belongs to Jared Polis, who is Colorado's Democratic governor. Uh, This isn't a red meat rally the base sort of political issue that really doesn't fall along kind of traditional political lines. It's not a so-called partisan issue. Uh, But Gardner clearly needs to win support from non-Republicans if he is to win re-election in November, likely against former Governor John Hickenlooper. I'd look for more coronavirus ads from Gardner and other candidates uh, as we approach the November election. Susan Collins in Maine has promoted her work for Maine small businesses. Martha McSally in Arizona has aired an anti-China coronavirus ad. And I think we may see may start to see some more of those in congressional races, Kyle. Yep. And the Democratic primary to take on Gardner is June 30th. This is Down Ballot Counts. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. As always, let's review last week's question. I asked for the last general election year in which California Republicans captured a U.S. House seat from Democrats. On a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, I even gave you four choices, 1998, 2002, 2004, and 2010. Kyle, what say you? I'm going 2002. Okay, it was actually, that was a good guess, but it was actually 1998 when Republican Doug Osi won the Sacramento area district of retiring Democrat Vic Fazio and Republican Steve Kuykendall won the district that Democrat Jane Harmon left open to run for governor. I asked that question 
one day before Republican Mike Garcia won a special election in the district that Democrat Katie Hill vacated with her resignation last November, a morale-boosting win for the Republicans. And now for this week's question. How many women presently serve as governor of a U.S. state? So I want you to think about that one. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and uh, use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll also tweak the question and four possible answers from the bgov feed as a Twitter poll. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, it's primary day, Kyle, Tuesday in Oregon and Idaho. In Oregon, I'm watching an 11-candidate Republican primary for the district of retiring Republican Greg Walden. Democrats Peter DeFazio and Kurt Schrader have more liberal primary challengers. Oregon is a vote-by-mail state. Also Tuesday, Mike Garcia of California and Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin will be sworn in to fill vacancies after winning special elections last week. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. We'll be off next week for the Memorial Day holiday, but we'll be back the week of May 31st as primaries get going again. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux, and be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Rebellion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.